Hey there, sports movie fans, and welcome to the 110th edition of Scoring at the Movies. We chat about sport adventures and we spoil. I'm Ryan Ellis, and here is Christy Gregorio. Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> now, we have a special episode this week. I recorded it in 2019 because we thought we'd need a few shows in the can for when Chris was about to move. But he managed to squeeze in the podcast while he was changing addresses. But we wanted to give ourselves some time off now and yet still post a new episode for all of you rather than just take what would be for us a month off effectively with the two weeks that we do normally. So that's why the audio you're about to hear sounds the way it does. I was in our old house and using the crappy snowball microphone. I don't think there are any dated references in there anymore. I did some trimming of this. There are some notes I want to make before we start the episode, though. The Rotten Tomatoes numbers are actually still the same after all these years. Nobody's reviewed it. It's seven reviews, 43% of critics for Great White Hope. That's the movie, of course, The Great White Hope. And in fact, the Rotten Tomatoes numbers for The Great White Hype, which I believe I mentioned in the podcast, are also almost the same as they were when I recorded this three years ago. 42% of critics, 24 reviews. And since some of our contact information has changed in the past three years, I'll say now that you can tweet us at moviefiend51 and at scoring at movies for Chris. The email address is scoring at the movies at gmail.com. And we hope you'll subscribe, rate, comment, and all that stuff on this and every other episode we have. Anything else you want to say before we get it going here? <laughs> Not really. You've never I, seen the movie, right? You never, never watched seen it. the movie. All I know of the movie is listening to the episode you recorded. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I've experienced all I need to experience <laughs> of the Great White Hope based on what you just said about the Rotten Tomatoes numbers unchanging over the last three years. My interest in The Great White Hope is probably met by the general interest in the zeitgeist for The Great White Hope, so nothing really to add there. It's a diet episode of Scoring at the Movies, Mm -hmm. much like my Diet Dr. Pepper that I'll crack open. For the next episode. (laughs) Well, I feel like every episode there needs to be at least a little bit of Foley work of cans opening. Even Mm -hmm. if I'm not in the episode, that can be my contribution. Well, you're in this one a little bit right now, but let's hit it. to learn your cliches. You're going to have to study them. You're going to have to know them. Well, you know, you go out there and you give 110% and you want to play good and, you know, you hope you play good. I think we play pretty good tonight. Well, you know, there's no I in the word team, man. This is a team effort. 10-5, touchdown. Oh, man, you know, you just got to play one game at a time and go out there and give 110%. All right! Play ball. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Scoring at the Movies, the Bye Thursday sports movie podcast. We talk about sporting flicks around here, generally from the 80s and 90s, but sometimes we travel back a lot further, as we will today. All of our episodes are jammed with spoilers. Normally this is where I'd introduce Chris DiGregorio, my partner in these sporty ventures, but he's not available this week, so I'm going to record this sucker alone. Alone, alone, alone. So let's get into it. 20th Century Fox released The Great White Hope in mid-October 1970. It was a box office failure and only made about 10 million bucks. Of course, Fox also released MASH and Patton that year, so no tears need be shed for the Foxies in 1970. The story is pretty simple. James Earl Jones is Jack Jefferson, a black heavyweight boxing champion from long ago, who A. dares to beat the living crap out of all his white opponents and keep winning, and B. dares to love a white woman. Promoters and officials plot and scheme to break Jack's spirit and see him stay down for the 10 count. Or, in a nutshell, white people are just the racist. The Rotten Tomatoes numbers on this movie are not very good. Only 43% of critics are fans, although there's only 7 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. And 66% of audiences. That's not too bad, actually. I watched it on a mediocre print on YouTube. So, hey, you can't beat free. 
One of the reasons I'm covering this movie, as opposed to a number of other ones I could do, sports movie-wise, is because I don't know that Chris would really care that much about covering this particular film. And it is a movie that was nominated for the top 100 genres in the sports category. Speaking of the AFI, and we'll do the Oscars right now as well, it was also nominated for the top 50 heroes, so that is Jack Jefferson, the James Earl Jones character. Didn't make the list, though. And it was nominated for two Oscars, Best Actor for Jones and Best Actress Jane Alexander. George C. Scott won the Oscar in 1970 over a lot of people, including Jack Nicholson in Five Easy Pieces and obviously Jones in this. But Jones gives a ferocious performance with just as much fire as what we see George C. Scott give in Patton. I'm not saying it's a better performance, but I was impressed. I've seen a lot of James Earl Jones movies. We all know him from the voice of Darth Vader. He's in Dr. Strangelove in a fairly small role. Love him in Field of Dreams, a movie that Chris and I are both big fans of. But this is one of his more impressive, fiery, not really surprising performances, I guess. I just didn't expect him to be quite this kind of brute, basically, but clever and smart as well at the same time, and a lot of personality. As for Alexander, his lady co-star and love of his life in this movie, Eleanor is her name. This was her debut, so her very first movie, she's nominated for an Oscar. Bev and I have covered her in All the President's Men in Kramer vs. Kramer, and she's been nominated several times, or was nominated several times way back in this era. I think all three of those, in fact, she was nominated for. Great White Hope, All the President's Men, and KVK. So Howard Sackler's Pulitzer Prize-winning play is what this was based on. That play won the Tony Award in 1969, so it was just absolutely lauded. Jones and Alexander won Tonys as actor and actress as well. So you're talking about a big-time pedigree going on to the screen in 1970. The play was inspired by heavyweight champion Jack Johnson, so a real guy. And there's a card at the beginning of the movie that says, Much of what follows is true. Obviously, they're basing this. They're not saying this is a biographical movie. Well, they don't call him Jack Johnson. They call him Jack Jefferson. Jack also has the flamboyance of Muhammad Ali. Didn't say float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, but you know what I'm saying. The movie is actually way more about politics and the politics of being black in particular than it is about boxing. Then again, some of the great boxing films have not really been about being in the ring. Raging Bull's got very little boxing in it. Rocky doesn't have that much boxing in it. It's more about training. All the movies, really, in the Rocky series are more about him training than him actually boxing anybody. The first Rocky, for example, six years later, the Best Picture winner, the huge hit that it was, the legendary movie that it was, has a fight at the beginning that Rocky has. Very briefly, we see him fighting Spida. And at the end against Apollo Creed, which isn't that much of the movie either. So here's another example of a movie that really doesn't get into the ring all that much for being a boxing movie. But I said it's about the politics of being black. In fact, we get a racial slur in the first minute of dialogue. One of the movies from last year that got a lot of raves and it was a decent-sized hit at the box office, Green Book, is a movie I found problematic. But one thing about it that I found disingenuous, and they maybe want to avoid an R rating, I don't know. I forget if it even had an R rating. But anyway, they don't say a word that those guys in that movie would be saying about the Mahershala Ali character, the N-word. I'm not saying you need to, but I'm saying that would have been authentic in the 60s with a bunch of white Italians in Brooklyn, Brooklyn? Well, New York anyway, who don't like the guy because he dares to be black. Well, same thing here. And this movie at least is more honest about it because they are blatantly saying it like it's just part of speech. It's not cool, but it's more honest. Later, there's a very racist effigy of Jack with a yellow street down his back. That stood out. I thought that was a pretty powerful little moment. And then the title of the film comes from the first boxer we meet who's supposed to take down Jack and doesn't do it. You're the White Hope, Mr. Brady. That's a line that's said to him. The guy who plays Brady is in Mr. Baseball. He's Howie in that film. Larry Pennell, or Pennell? Pennell probably is how you say it. The first time we see Jack, he is just beating the living crap out of a heavy bag. And then he shares an interracial kiss with Jane Alexander, who we don't know at that point is his love interest. 
He's supposed to be married, so I guess you could argue that he's actually cheating on his wife. But this is a movie about a great romance for a long time. These two are truly in love, and they're truly in lust. We don't see an actual sex scene, but it's a pretty passionate film. The interracial kiss reminded me of Star Trek, because it wasn't that long before that Star Trek had the first ever on television, at least, kiss between a black person and a white person. In that case, it was a black woman, Uhura, and Kirk. And only a few years before this film was Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, an Oscar-winning film with Sidney Poitier falling in love with a young white woman. And I don't recall at the moment, I haven't seen that movie in a few years, but I don't think he ever kisses her in that. They don't seem very passionate. Well, they don't need to in the course of that movie, granted, but... It's just something you think about, that these two are supposed to be in love, and yet we don't really see evidence of that. That's also a movie that's a day in a life of. We see basically one full day in their lives. So, anyway. So, back to the Grey White Hope. They market Jack's fights as, come see the black guy get destroyed. Pretty smart tactic, because he is on top. He's the star. You want to see the star go down anyway, unless you're a huge fan, I guess. Be like, maybe Tom Brady. <laughs> come beat the Patriots, but especially beat Tom Brady. If Brady was black, well, he maybe wouldn't have a job in the NFL as a quarterback, but he also would undoubtedly be getting that. Yeah, he has to go down because he dares to be a black man. We often see the rabid crowds. They're basically frothing in the mouth. And some of the black people in the story don't like them either. Although I did like that a lot of the black characters had depth. It isn't just Jack Jefferson and his manager who've got some lines and some depth. We see other people talking and having real lives and we get the feeling there's something going on there. They're not just noble, perfect people. One of the problems with Driving Miss Daisy is that Morgan Freeman is the perfect black man who has no life and no seeming passion of any kind. He never gets mad in the movie, not really anyway. We know he has a family, but we know nothing about them. This is a movie that shows a black guy, especially the main character, but other ones too, daring to show themselves and not just yasa boss to everybody. When the black characters are just with each other, they're more real, and I appreciate that as well. You also hear about the Colored Baseball Club, that's what they say. The Blue Jays. And of course, we know the Blue Jays here in Toronto as our favorite team since 1977, the two-time World Series champions. And there's also the Montreal Blacks. So I guess that's supposed to be that in Canada, we're cool with non-white people. And maybe we're better about that up here, but we have racism here too. Let's not forget that. There's a great line where Eleanor meets up with the DA, played by Hal Holbrook, who's in All the President's Men as well. And he also has a wonderful role in Into the Wild, one of his last performances, I think it was. Well, it was an Oscar-nominated performance and a really good one. Heartbreaking little role for him. But anyway, she says to him in this movie, you're a slimy, two-bit, no-dick mother grubber. <laughs> she doesn't actually go as far as saying the other words she could use there. You could say this is a picture of two people very much in love, like I said before, but then let's ruin it. And that's what they seem to realize with this, is the way to bring him down is to go after the woman he's clearly in love with. The system holds him down so hard that even the lovers start fighting. It's kind of heartbreaking, in fact, because had there been a movie where, like Rocky and Adrian, they're always together, and at least that one thing will work no matter what else happens with his boxing career. But nope, that's the thing he loses more than anything, is his love of her. By the end, they're not together anymore. And it's as much his fault as hers, although it happens because of the white people in power. It does get violent towards the end. Their last scene together, he's whipping her with his clothes, and understandably that doesn't age very well. But as Chris and I have pointed out in other sports movies, you have to take it in the context of the times, 1970. You also have to take it in the context of what they're going for. It's supposed to be shocking and powerful that a black man is whipping a white woman with clothes, granted, and she's not in chains, she's not a slave. But no doubt they're going for the metaphor, the vision of how offensive that is, no matter who's doing it to anyone else. But it's the kind of thing that not that many years before, not even 100 years before, was still happening in America, where he would have been whipped by her, or a white man more so, I guess. It's just part of his life. 
Jack even does a crotch grab in that scene, saying he'd sooner cut off his dick than let her have it anymore. So Jack is supposed to take a dive in the last fight, and I like the touch that it's a bright sunny day outside, just this ultimate contrast between this dark part of his life, where his romance is over, and his career, maybe he's going to come to an end, but he's actually finally doing something he doesn't want to do, but he's got to try to stay out of jail by taking the dive. He still won't do it the right way, though. He keeps getting knocked down, but then getting back up again. You repeatedly got me down, Ray. You repeatedly got me down. And then the guy, of course, hits him so hard that he finally stays down, which reminds me a lot of Cool Hand Luke. Paul Newman's character will not stop in his fight against Dragline, George Kennedy, until finally George Kennedy hits him so hard that in the process of going down, he falls into Kennedy's arms, and that's the end of the fight. But they have gained a new respect for each other. And the last shot of the film is reminiscent of how Rocky was supposed to end, where the loser leaves after losing the fight quietly. No one notices him anymore. It's him and his manager. Two guys are holding him up as they walk him out, and the white guy's been paraded off as this great big conquering hero. He is now the great white hope. Jack no longer matters to anyone. It's a bit of a tragic ending. And he also had to take a dive, and he lost his woman. Americans always say they love the underdog. And this is a classic example of how that's crap. Black people are the underdog in life anyway, especially in America. This guy wasn't the underdog, actually, because he's such a good fighter. It's like Muhammad Ali was not really an underdog because he was so talented and better than everybody else. But he was politically. And the system wanted to bring him down, especially when he refused to fight in Vietnam. And then he paid a price for that for a while because he couldn't box. What happens in this movie is worse. And apparently Jack Johnson went through a lot of these things in reality many decades before. What happened to Ali wasn't cool, but what happened to Johnson was even worse. There's juicy little roles here for Lou Gilbert, who plays Goldie, and he'd been in Requiem for a Heavyweight earlier. That's another boxing film. Pretty good one, as I recall. I saw that many years ago. And then Robert Weber, who's juror number 12 in 12 Angry Men. He's the advertising executive who flip-flops his vote a few times and is always taking his glasses off and on. He's Dixon. He's got a pretty big part in this movie, and in the end, he's a pretty big slimeball. But at the same point, he's well-drawn because he's not just blatantly racist, like the characters in Black Klansmen. My problem with those villains in that movie, the racists, is that all they ever talk about is hating black people and ripping into them and calling them names every single moment they're on screen. These guys do a lot of that too, but it's also more about business, and we're seeing them in a business setting, so they have to try to beat this guy. So yeah, I guess maybe it's the same thing now that I think about it, but it's just done better in this movie, for whatever faults this movie has, Great White Hope, when it's the white people alone talking about the black people, I bought it more. I didn't mention the director yet, Martin Ritt, who did HUD, and also Norma Ray. This is a guy who takes on issues films quite a lot there, with Norma Ray being all about unions. He's a pretty solid director, worked with Paul Newman quite a lot. He directed this film fine. I didn't really say that, did I? Not a huge fan of this movie. I would say if you're going by the star rating, it'd be a very soft three stars. If you went by out of ten, it'd be maybe a six and a half to seven out of ten. Partly for, well, mostly for the performances of Jones and Alexander. They're very good, very passionate together, very believable. And I was just so impressed with this guy we know as being pretty cool, calm, and collected in most films and likable. Not that he's not likable in this movie, but James Earl Jones is a flawed dude. And you can understand why he brings some of this, not very much of it, but some of this on himself. Because I guess to some degree, when you think about sports movies and all the ones Chris and I have covered, there is an element of playing ball. If you want to be in the major leagues, you want to be in the NFL, you want to be a boxer, you want to be in the NBA, and so on. you got to play by their rules to a certain extent. Colin Kaepernick has faced the wrath of not doing that. Now, if he was a white guy protesting something the exact same way, he'd probably still have a career. But part of why he is being punished is because he's daring to go against the norm and go against the grain. Not denying at all that what's happening to him is not racist, but there's an element of 
play ball call and do it our way. And he doesn't want to do that. That's what's going on here with Jack in this film. The writer Howard Sackler also wrote Quince Indianapolis speech in Jaws, and then he had a screenplay credit on all of Jaws too. Of course, if you're a Jaws fan, you know what I'm talking about with the Indianapolis speech. It's one of the most important parts of the whole movie, and for a lot of people, it's the best part of the whole movie. Producer was Lawrence Terman, who produced The Graduate only a few years before this, one of the biggest hits ever, and then The Thing in 1982. I love that the kazoo is part of the music score. You don't hear a lot of kazoos in music, but that was a nice little touch in this music score. One of the legacies of The Great White Hope is The Great White Hype in 1996 with Sam Jackson and Jeff Goldblum. It's a clever title, actually. Also a boxing movie. And I haven't seen that one, so I don't know much about it, but I think it plays off of the storyline of this movie, not just the title. Other than that, Great White Hope didn't really take off in any kind of way as an influence on their films. And I guess I can understand why if it wasn't really successful, except you'd kind of wonder why James Earl Jones didn't get more acting parts with this kind of juice and power in them. Maybe he got Star Wars because he was known from this role. Maybe that's why George Lucas even knew who he was. Because he was acting on Broadway. He'd been acting in movies for a while. He wasn't a nobody, but he wasn't a big star even after this. So overall, a mixed bag. Certainly not a bad movie. I appreciated the honesty of a lot of it, as brutal as some of that is. And it's always nice when a movie's free. <laughs> but should this movie have made the top 10 of the top 100 genres in the sports category? No, definitely not. There's some debatable ones in there. I don't know if National Velvet really is a movie that deserves to be on there. Maybe I'll cover that one day in another movie I don't think Chris really will care much about if I do that by myself. But this isn't one of the top ten sports movies ever made, without a doubt. Take her easy, dudes. I know that you will.